Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox, as always. Greetings. And our special guest today is none other than Simon Barry, the producer, the creator, and most of the time, I'm pretty sure, director of the uh, Canadian science fiction television series Continuum. Welcome to the show, Simon. Uh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Just so you know, I, I, um, I do direct episodes, but I would not be uh, described as the uh, primary director of the series. That actually falls to Patrick Williams, who directs most of our episodes and is also one of my partner producers on the show. Yeah, that's why I qualified it. I, mean, I was uh, pretty, pretty, pretty sure you <laughs> weren't kind of a doing director, directing. And a full-time writer. Uh-huh. That's, um, that's where we wanted to start, actually. Uh, we uh, we looked you up on uh, IMDb and Wikipedia, and we were expecting a long list of credits that would reach this pinnacle that is Continuum, that mm -hmm. debuted in the United States on Sci-Fi Channel and was on Showcase in Canada. Uh, and we found a very short list, and this mystified us. Because you obviously know how to do this. <laughs> yes. But, because well, how come they let you? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. So tell um, us that story. Well, that is, uh, well, I started in the industry as a cameraman, not a writer. Mm -hmm. um, and that was back uh, a long time ago. So I spent the first part of my career working on sets in the crew capacity and, uh, and as a technician and uh, working in the camera department, working my way up. Um, and so I made a very uh, sort of, uh, um, I guess you'd say, determined decision to change um, careers within the industry at a certain point. And I um, took, my, uh, took my chances in the writing end of uh, the business and although that started out very well for me I, I ended up getting an agent very quickly and selling some material and getting hired to do uh, rewrites and um, write a few movies uh, success in television actually took quite a while and so I was working for about 10 years as a writer um, writing pilots that were unproduced until Continuum hit so what it looks so it's the optics of, of Wikipedia and IMDB mm -hmm. tend to show you what gets produced not 
what you don't get produced. And uh-huh. sometimes that can be the larger part of the volume of your work. So what happened was Continuum was the first television series I wrote that went to camera. And so from appearances, it could seem that I'm an overnight success. However, and I am an overnight success. I'm just an overnight success over 20 years. <laughs> and that's almost always the way it works. It's a lot of nights. And there's a huge... I, I, I'm amazed at... Uh, well, first of all, most people aren't able to make this kind of a transition. I mean, you it's went It's not from, unusual, no. It's not a, it does not lead naturally from camera to writing at all. It doesn't leave... Doesn't lead much from camera to anything else either. Well, I saw many directors actually come from the camera department, and 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 learning about the camera certainly prepared me better as a director, um, and was a very was a great foundation for directing. Uh, once I did start directing for Continuum, so having that familiarity with the camera and having a familiarity with how a film set kind of TV set operates was a real advantage for me and, and an advantage for me as a writing producer because um, I, I was coming to writing from a place of understanding how films get made and, and what kind of um, work goes into a, a day on a set and what are the limitations. So I could write to a more practical um, vision. Mm-hmm. of uh, a script uh, without, you know, compromising hopefully too much of the creative. Well, and the converse of this is that, uh, um, you know, you know exactly what's gone into the mix. So, you know, how you're as you're writing this, you know how you're going to deal with it when you when you get to the day. Yeah, exactly. Um, it can be hard not to direct or shoot as the writer, though. You know. Just... Well, in television, the writer has much more control than the director. Um, in television, the writer is ultimately the boss, um, in the sense that uh, as a showrunner, uh, you you tend to be the head writer. And so we can't have one. We don't have one person direct all the episodes. So um, myself and my producing partners, we decide who directs and we hire those directors and we mm-hmm. kind of shape their approach to how the show gets mm-hmm. made. And because also we have the last word in the and the post-production pipeline, we actually get to shape the show uh, as a more homogenous um, animal instead of treating each episode as its own individual stylistic choice, which sometimes those directors may or may not bring, we can kind of reshape the episodes to make it feel like there's one concise, one sort of cohesive vision for the entire show, whether it's the writing, the direction, the editing, all of these things should feel like it's from one perspective as opposed to 13 different points of view. And in Continuum, you've certainly accomplished that. Um, I of course, I haven't been able to binge watch the entire series, but uh, I'm planning Quite on doing it. a bit of it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I've watched watched a few episodes of it, uh, sampled through throughout the uh, the three season arc so far. Uh, and Going straight from first to last yeah, episode I went, yeah, was did a the bit first of a mind one. bender. Yeah, yes, did the first be. one, did the last one, did a few of the ones in between, just to get a, a, a taste of where your character arcs were going and where your story arc was going. And uh, wow, I mean, it's you have character arcs doing handsprings and flip-flops and interweaving back and forth in ways that I never would have expected, partly facilitated by the fact that you have a time travel story and you can do these recursive loops god i hate time travel i gotta tell you (laughs) well it's funny you know we've done we've done 42 episodes now of the show we've only used time travel three times 
Well, well, but that's you've true. got that's true, actually. Well, right. and each each time you do it, uh, you've got these these interweaving ramifications, you know, where where yeah. history is rewritten. Well, the first episode I think was necessary. Yeah, well, the yes, first episode really is the, the first instance of time travel that sets up the paradigm that the show becomes, mm-hmm. and then the second time we use it uh, is really um, when uh, Alec. Uh, you know, in the end of season two, decides to go back and save Emily's life by starting a new timeline by going back a few weeks, and that sense of motion. What you're talking about is this domino effect of causality. Um, but really, because time travel is a relative experience, only the time traveler experiences these things. Not no one else does. Um, the the experience of these of these, uh, as you call them, major changes are really limited to the perspective of the person actually time traveling. But for a while, you and the have, audience. Well, yes, and the audience, of course. And uh, for a while, you have uh, one copy extra each of your two main uh, protagonists. That's right. Yes. Yeah, because when you travel back two weeks, um, you're you are you're essentially <laughs> returning to a place you have already been, which means there was a version of you that exists there, um, and that was that's our. Our, uh, I guess you could call our canon or our school of time travel was not a um, was not a closed loop version. It was a uh, version where uh, traveling in time had consequences. Mm-hmm. So, how does one go about mapping out the entire uh, the entire episode arc for for a season? I mean, I know how you do it in general for a script. You know, setting up uh, setting up your story beats, but do you apply the same concept to setting up uh, an entire season's worth of scripts? Well, yeah, we tend to break the stories of the entire season uh, in advance of writing any of the scripts. So we spend um, at the beginning of each season in the writing room. We tend to just put aside two to three weeks and just have conversations and uh, take copious notes based on those conversations, and it really allows us to throw out. Um, a lot of ideas or to ch- test a lot of ideas that will um, get us to the end point. And, and it usually comes down to um, myself and the other co-EP level writers. Uh, this last season it was Jonathan Walker and, and Shelley Erickson. And we, we kind of set goalposts for ourselves and for the room mm-hmm. and say, here's how do we want to end the show and here's where we know we have to begin because that's usually built on the end of the previous mm-hmm. season. And we figure out a way to the most interesting way to get from A to B over the course of the episodes. And of course, it's that's that's there is usually um, half a dozen storylines that mm-hmm. are involved in that process. But we do have a very good idea of what we're heading towards before anyone starts writing any of the scripts. And that's uh, that's not uncommon. I think a lot of shows that are not um, episodic tend to, you know, the, the nature of television now much more serialized. And you, you really do have to know where you're going before you can um, start your uh, trip. And we like to know as much as possible. Now, things do change as you go. Scripts shift. Characters shift. There are details that change. But in general, the, the larger plan uh, remains intact. Joe Michael Straczynski once said that he had alternate storylines for every major character, just in case uh, he lost somebody during production. Did you do the same thing? Uh, no, we didn't. Uh, we we never really uh, played that um, safety valve. 
um, we would probably deal with it on the fly. And, and usually because we just, that's not, uh, was not really kind of in our, um, our focus. We, we didn't really feel like that was a, a situation we had to face in terms of losing major cast. All of our casts were, were, um, dialed in in terms of their options. We, we weren't really, um, from season to season in the wind in terms of casting. We mm-hmm. had a good idea of the cast that we were going to be um, using the contractual obligations they had to us and also the supporting cast who were pretty much all keen to be part of the show. There was really no dissension. They weren't going to get a better job in the meantime. Well, they, that can always happen to some of the actors, but when you have actors under option, which we did for our leads, uh-huh. uh, even if they do, and that's typical in all television shows, most actors do sign on for a five- to seven-year commitment, uh-huh. regardless of how long the show goes. So you, you just have to re-option their, um, their commitment by a certain date uh, at the end of every season so that they are, um, they, uh, are confident that they're going to be coming back to work. Rachel McNick, I'm sorry, Rachel Nichols, uh, who plays uh, Kira Cameron, um, she was an inspired choice. I mean, she, I, uh, if if you were ever going to <laughs> phone, uh, yeah. if you were ever going to uh, uh, recast Batman as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> she could do it. She's, and she's she could got the sell physicality, it. but yeah, she loves to fight. She loves yeah. to do the physical stuff. And, oh, and she just has she has a, a a a commanding screen presence when she needs it, and she's vulnerable when she needs to be, and she's just she can handle the entire spectrum from the infrared to the ultraviolet. And she's just very very impressive. How about putting her up as Wonder Woman? Yeah, um, not a bad idea. No, I, I agree. Bulb. I agree. Light bulb. Uh, she she would be awesome. Yes. Yes. Obviously, they've already cast someone for the coming movie. That part has been cast and already shot, as I believe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Too bad because the, the next, she would have been. Uh, she would have been great. Superman movie. Yeah. 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 No, I, we know that. Uh, uh, we know uh, perfectly well. But there's always TV. There's always the future. Who yeah. Knows? No, I think um, I think um, I think Rachel will help probably have a lot of opportunities post continuum for. Um, these kinds of robust physical roles, but also where someone needs to be able to deliver uh, a good performance as well. Oh, because she's just uh, <laughs> she's just really engaging and present and everything you want her to be. Uh, she was. How did you end up casting her? How did you find her? Uh, well, we you know it's funny we when we were first putting the uh, list sort of a wish list together of names um we were in a position where we were we had sort of two lists we had a list of people who had come in and read for continuum mm-hmm. um because we had the you know casting directors had put the the breakdown out there for the show and so agents were aware of that this was being cast and um because we were going straight to series it was probably something that a lot of um Actors were being told about that this was, you know, a go series, which is unusual. Most of the shows will come off a pilot, but we were going straight to a 10 episode order. And so we had a list of sort of people we would love to have and people who, um, and then there was a second list where there were, we had people who, uh, had come in and read and Rachel's name showed up on both lists. Uh-huh. Uh, and we were kind of impressed because <laughs> normally, um, you, you, you know, the actors that you are, are sort of putting on your wish list are not the ones who traditionally come in and read. But what we had found out after the fact was Rachel had been given the script by a friend of hers 
And in spite of her agent's uh, insistence that she not go in and audition, she had decided on her own to do it anyway because she knew the, the casting director um, in New York. So she went in and read. And so for us, it was kind of this amazing um, opportunity that an actor we were looking at anyway as a potential name for the lead had also the had read the script, loved it so much that she had sort of gone against her agent's uh, orders and, and audition. And so when you see that, it gives you a sense of, um, of real hope that somebody really get, wants and loves the material and has a, um, a desire, you know, to be part of it. And that really meant a lot to the producers and myself. We, we saw someone who had name brand value from G.I. Joe and from uh, shows like Alias. And um, we wanted her to have a, um, we wanted to give her the best shot she could. So we were very keen to, um, to go after her as well. And it was just a nice, uh, a nice you know, uh, shared um, affection in, t- in the sense that we were uh, both trying to have the same thing. That's, that's a great way to set things up. I mean, it, when everybody goes, uh, sees the same vision and goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but hers is not the only familiar face, certainly for uh, sci-fi. Your, your big bad of the Liberate we used to be uh, the, the alien sensei in uh, yes, Stargate. Yes, Kellogg. Yeah, um, and, uh, and um, uh, Kagami, yes. And, um, and yeah, in Vancouver, as you know, we have a, uh, a real wealth of, um, of actors, uh, who have made a lot of, um, a lot of their, uh, faces famous through sci-fi shows that have shot here, whether it's the X-Files or Stargate. And they are, you know, they're, it's just such a talented and deep pool. Uh, that it's great for a show like Continuum to be able to, where we aren't like a big budget American show, we, we make the show for about half the price of a typical show like, um, you know, Arrow or Flash. So we can take advantage of our Canadianness and use local actors in a way that uh, really elevates the show's profile and keeps us connected to our sci fi fans worldwide uh, because they are fans of those other shows and know those actors. So how long have you personally been a science fiction fan yourself? I, I've been a sci-fi fan probably forever. Uh, I mean, I've always loved movies and um, uh, sci-fi books, sci-fi movies, sci-fi television. I grew up mm-hmm. watching the original Star Trek series. I was heavily yeah. influenced by Star Wars when it came out. I was 10 years old when the movies came uh-huh. out, so I was sort of, I was the bullseye audience oh, age. God, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's uh, you know from that perspective um I've always been in the I've always been a fan um of uh science fiction and ironically even though I was a writer for a long time in Hollywood before Continuum I didn't have, actually have a chance to write much sci-fi until Continuum. Oh you leapfrogged me and and answered my next question for me. So yeah, cuz Hamlet whilst it has some Supernatural, uh, supernatural elements, elements is not what we'd call sci-fi. science fiction, yeah. but it has it's it's got, got a all ghost. The, it it yeah. has all the necessary things that you need for a story. Got a lot I of mean, stunt work because, of course, the uh, uh, before you can have good science fiction, you first have to have a good story. Story, yes, story, story, story is king. So, do you get? Uh, um, uh, are you 
interactive with uh, um, the the schools in the Vancouver area? Schools. Do you do you speak at universities and? Oh, writing schools, like you know, writing schools or schools. production schools. Oh yeah, I mean, I have, um, I've had a, uh, the odd interaction certainly with um, uh, my alma mater, University of British Columbia, but also uh, Simon Fraser University here. I've spoken uh, at their. Uh, well, they have a film program called Praxis, which is actually it's part of the university, but it's not necessarily a, a course, but it's a mm-hmm. screenwriting. Um, program that's um, connected to the university, and then the Vancouver Film School as well. Do you um, do you have any particular advice for uh, for somebody who wants to begin screenwriting? I mean, as this, I realize this is a very common, very general question, but uh, are there things that a beginning screenwriter should absolutely avoid doing? Well, I think um, all with all writing, that doesn't matter whether you're doing screenplays or uh, prose or poems, novels, it doesn't matter. I think even journalism, I think the more you write, the better you get automatically. So mm-hmm. um, the my advice is always um, to be writing all the time and to have as much material. Uh, the more material you generate, uh, two things happen. You create more opportunities for yourself just in terms of business and you also get better uh so it's a two-for-one proposition and all it requires is desire to write and things just get easier and easier the more you write because you have more material in circulation and you get better at the craft of writing and i think that's probably the most straightforward and simple advice i can ever give um at the end of the day all the other nuances of writing are really so specific to the individual and to the tone and the style of writing that somebody wants to pursue. It's really, there's nowhere you can really give advice on that front. I think you just sort of embrace what you love to write and you do as much of it Mm -hmm. as you can. Who are your favorite authors? My favorite authors? Um, I have, it's so hard to pick the favorites. (laughs) I I love Neil Stevenson just because he's uh so specific in the knowledge of his technology of his universe that he builds of the characters and the detail the level of detail for with stevenson is it's intimidating but it's also really rewarding when you read uh william gibson i'm a fan of who's a canadian mm-hmm. obviously um i uh, used to read a lot of alan dean foster when i was younger and um tolkien's one of my favorites it's all over the map and it's probably the the, the it's everyone's top 20 list in, in popular science fiction and, uh, and probably nothing standing out really that, of, that's different. There are, uh, Gene Roddenberry, of course, of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and, and, uh, you know, you were mentioning earlier about the differences between, uh, uh, episodic television and, and uh, telling a serial story. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, with respect to science fiction, uh, uh, Joe Michael Straczynski sort of pioneered that uh, with Babylon Five. He, I think he yeah. was the first, the first one to really uh, tell well, to tell a five year story. Tell a five year story. It's yeah. not like the other series before that weren't sequential. I mean, you had to start even even non science fiction has you know a beginning and an end. You know? Oh no, and this is definitely symptomatic of a trend of television that has evolved. I mean, uh, that's it's it goes it's, you end up writing what the marketplace wants you to write in terms of uh, the types of stories and the way whether it's serialized or episodic or or both. And that really is a function of 
the marketplace more than anything. Well, the soaps have been doing that for many decades. Yeah, yeah. You've said that your show is barely science fiction. Uh, would you like to? Uh, would well, you the like only to? the only science fiction. Well, I was, about well, to, I was going to say the only science it. fiction yeah. element was the I'll time travel, but then mean, there's her her gadgetry. So yeah, we were trying to offset the the immense um, leap of time travel as a as a trope mm-hmm. and balance it with something that felt more grounded and more relevant in terms of the themes of the show. We you know time travel is a great device in terms of the mythology of the show. But the stories of the show, we really didn't want to feel like they were so out there that they weren't relatable. And so we, we made an effort, all the writers did, to tie into themes of today and ideas that people are concerned about today and make that the, the reason that the show exists and just have the, have the time travel really service the mythology of the characters and some of the politics. And in that way, that was sort of the goal, was to keep a show that felt like um, it wasn't so out there that it couldn't be happening uh, to counterbalance the, the crazy, um, the crazy time travel part of it. It's so difficult to, uh, to write a serialized story like this and yet keep it so that the, the audience who's jumping in in the middle can come in and feel at home. Yeah, it is hard. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the uh, the ongoing issues of serialized TV is, um, uh, but it's being, you know, it's being remedied because so many shows like ours are on Netflix now. An audience has the opportunity to catch up with the linear story and the, and the serialized stakes so that they can be as invested as any other audience member. I, I don't think any of us really working on Continuum ever assumed people would jump into the show in the middle of season two or season three and really have a hope of knowing everything that was going on or even understanding the stakes. But the idea that now we can um, catch up in online or on Netflix mm-hmm. really allows uh, for audience members to not be put in that position, that they can catch up with the show early on or even discover it on Netflix and then catch up with the first run episodes when they air. I was just about to, uh, I was just about to mention that actually. Uh, did you find that, I was going to say that you must have found the ability to have the previous uh, the previous seasons on Netflix somewhat liberating in that respect. Yeah, it was great. Um, and and Netflix has been a, a, a partner from day one for Continuum. They were they were they came on board in the early days, uh, even before we started shooting as a as a, a partner. So I was thrilled because I always believed in Netflix even before. It became as big as it is, mm-hmm. and I understood the value from a as a showrunner creator of having a, li- a live library of old episodes that you, that really was you know always available. And we've seen that 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 halo effect of having the show on Netflix has added you know to the fan base. Has we constantly get messages on Facebook and Twitter that people are discovering the show for the first time, you know, three years, four years later, and and that's a great. Um, and they're, you know, they're willing and they're, they like it enough that they're making noise about it. And that draws more eyeballs to the show. And, you know, it's kind of a, a great thing that you can discover a show for the first time four years, five years after it first aired. I think that's wonderful, well, especially that's- for sci-fi fans who, mm-hmm. you know, aren't necessarily being serviced completely by traditional TV markets, you know. Oh, you can what say a kind, that tactful way to put that. <laughs> 
But imagine going back 65 years from today and having nothing that you're, you're used to. No Netflix, no computers. Yeah. Well, there'd be movies. There would be movies. Yeah, and they'd be a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> you could get in for a buck. Um, the uh, You don't have a whole lot in the way of visual effects. Um, you know, most of your stuff is... Uh, Eyeballs. Yeah, That's it's just it. uh, yeah, it's just nice camera work and good storytelling, and then occasionally you have something science fiction thrown in. Um, what... Um, uh, who's doing the effects work for the well, show? Do you have we, a we have a company team? in Vancouver called Artifacts mm-hmm. that is a uh, local company that does all the visual effects for Continuum. And um, we have a great relationship with them. It's um, run by a gentleman named Adam Stern, who's also mm-hmm. a filmmaker. He's a very, um, very smart and a very intuitive guy who understands also, the limitations that we're we are faced with with uh, with a show that is, has a Canadian budget, mm-hmm. and so we we have we kind of worked together with Adam to find a way to best use the money we have earmarked for visual effects, so that we're not trying to spread it so thin through the show that we have a lot of average looking uh, scenes that we really focus on key scenes that have a story impact and have a emotional impact, and that we can then really do a better job and we have a philosophy on the show called which is less better so we will tend to forego the number of shots of that are digitally created and go for fewer that are in that are higher quality and so we really look to adam and to his team to help us manage you know what we have set aside in the budget for visual effects so that we are getting the most bang for the buck so it's all it's all done on a meter really i mean you have to uh you have to gauge exactly how much you have uh, in your budget, in order to service the, yeah. the needs, well, of isn't it always earmarking enough? We we yeah. basically set aside money in the budget, like we do on um, on everything in the show. Uh, we we sort of pre uh, we predict uh, a lot of the costs in advance, mm-hmm. and we and we set aside money to accommodate those things that we know we're going to need. Now, those things shift and change as we go, and sometimes things cost more, sometimes they cost less. Um, and we can move money around from episode to episode so that, that some scenes that need more effects in one episode can have more, and we'll, we'll take that money out of an episode that doesn't necessarily need as many so that we're not spending money where we don't need it, and, um, and we're maximizing what we need from a mm-hmm. season's point of view as opposed to just an episode's point of view. So I would imagine that uh, you know you get a, you get a little bit of a swing there um, you know towards your uh, uh, season closers and your, your yeah we tend to sort of go from the uh, from the middle out it's uh, uh-huh. the, the opening couple of episodes tend to have more action more visual effects the last two will have more action and more visual effects the middle group will tend to be more character and story driven um, and less visual effects less action but. That and that's sort of how you, if you look at the season like a three act structure, that's sort of how they do it in, in movies too. You know, you, you you front load some things to to pull the audience in, to get them invested and excited. You you get into character in the second act, and then you you pay it all off in the third act with more action. And mm-hmm. we sort of treat our season in much the same way. We break it down into sort of a three act structure. Well, it's going to so, be a, a short short set of acts next time. You've got yes, all your scripts written. There's six episodes in the in the cliffhanger pickup, and 
And you got picked up for your fourth season. Congratulations. Well, well thank goodness, because yeah. I think there'd have been a riot. That would have been a heck of a cliffhanger <laughs> at the end of season three. And spoilers. Yeah. Spoilers. Hush. But, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, have you... Uh, but you've got a three, three, you know, a three-stage process all worked out. So, so actually, well, we have out. we've actually finished shooting the final season already, um, uh, and we're in the post we're in the post production part of that. We just finished on Saturday, actually. Yeah, I just the, I uh, saw your tweet on the on yeah. about that on Twitter. So um, we're we're already into the uh, into the uh, the editing and the uh, post production part of the episode. So we have a good sense of what the final season is going to be, and it's turned out I'm really happy with it. Oh, How long good. does it take to? Uh, mm. To get from uh, raw footage to a finished episode, once once it's in the can. Yeah, I mean, we uh, it takes about seven days to shoot the episode, and then um, following that, we'll get our um, our cuts. Usually, within our first cuts, will usually be a week, a week and a half from the last day, and then um, we'll lock the, we'll fine tune those edits until uh, for another week or so until. Um, the network has basically approved everything, and then we um, we start doing the sound, the visual effects, the music. Um, all of that usually takes between uh, nine and eleven weeks um, to get to the point where we can actually deliver a completely completely finished episode that's been color timed. It has credits. It has all the music. It's been mixed. Uh, it has all the visual effects in it. Um, it. It shifts a little bit. Sometimes it can be less. Sometimes it can be more. It depends on which episode we're talking about, where they are in the order, because work tends to get jammed in. You know, as you uh-huh. go, even though you start with the first two episodes, as start as soon as you start piling more work onto that workload, things start to slow down a little bit for the for the whole. And do you, uh, do you have uh, uh, the music all set up uh, beforehand, or do you have no. to have custom pieces written? No. Or is it, is uh, it Jeff all? Dana, who's our composer, composes music only once we've seen we've sent him the uh, the cut. The, There's the a name cut. I remember. What do you remember it from? Other shows. <laughs> okay. The name. The name means something. I can't remember which shows. Yeah, it's. Uh, Thank you for embarrassing. Me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just. So, um, have uh, you know? You've just seen us go kerfluffle there. Have you? Uh, <laughs> have uh, uh, can you remember any particular holy crud moments uh, during this the whole process? Yeah, I mean, we've had our we've made our fair share of mistakes, and uh, and usually I'm responsible for them. Um, the, I, I guess our biggest one was an episode from season three. I think it was episode nine, which uh, I had written, and so it's all on me. Uh, but I was also tasked with sort of solving the problem, which is you know usually what my job description is on a normal day. Uh, we had um, we had written a huge plot into episode nine that was a major kind of heist crime plot uh, which was our a story and the a story usually takes up the bulk of the episode and our b story was the arrival of brad tonkin who is the um the time traveler uh from this alternate future that kellogg has has manufactured and so um i'd written the episode we shot the episode and then in the editing room i'd realized i'd made a terrible mistake that the A story wasn't nearly as interesting as the B story, but you can't just, you know, um, flip them. And so what I, I asked the editor to do was basically take out the A story completely and just replace it with the B story. And luckily, 
um, we had enough footage uh, from the Brad uh, story, Brad and Kira story, to actually expand it into what became the A story of the episode. That's and we, remarkable. And then we took little little snippets of the A, the original A story, which was the crime heist story, uh-huh. and peppered it through the episode, so it became a much more secondary, much smaller part of the storytelling. And that was one of those things where you it's a bit of a holy shit moment when you realize our whole plan has been turned upside down and we have to adjust. And that was, you know, that was an uh-oh, but a very, this. if you would never know if we watched the episode, we said it all came together quite well at the end of the day, and it's much more in tune with what the series is about and what the show is about. But it was one of those things where you, you know, all the intentions were good. It just doesn't sometimes, the meal sometimes doesn't turn out the way the ingredients are set in. And uh, and that was one of those situations where we we all. But you wound up with a better meal. Well, that's what happens. You you improvise, right? And that's what happens when you're cooking a meal and it goes sideways. You have to improvise and do something different, or bring out the appetizers. Yeah, yeah. So that's really what we did, and uh, and it worked out great. And we actually got a a much stronger episode, I think, as a result. So you're actually so you're kind of almost done with this at this point. And um, what's next for Simon Barry? Well, I have another couple of months just uh, post-production on uh, the, the season four uh, until we start delivering the episodes. The work doesn't really stop for me. And then um, I've got several uh, other ideas that I've already um, set up or sold to other companies and other networks. And I, I really don't know which one of those I'll be doing next until somebody at those networks decides that they want to shoot them. Any of them, them in the science fiction or fantasy vein? Yeah, they are. They're, they're definitely, uh, they all have a, a layer of science fiction uh, to them to a degree. Some are more grounded in sort of the more orphan black world where it's not high concept sci-fi. And some of them are, are actually much larger sci-fi, big concept, traditional stories that uh, are, 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 could only be done in the sci-fi realm. So it's a bit of a sliding scale. I've got several mm-hmm. different projects out there, and it's really like having four lottery tickets right now. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping once the first one that uh, gets, uh, gets going, that'll be the next thing I do. Mm-hmm. There's a production company, which looked interesting. Is it Reality Distortion Field? Yes, that's uh, that's my new production company. Um, was formed last year uh, with uh, a gentleman named Stephen Hedges, who's a, um, a veteran producer. And um, so together, we're uh, rolling out several projects that I'm writing, but also other writers are involved with, uh, such as Jackie Gould and uh, and Dennis McGrath. And um, we're hoping to work with a lot of other writers as well on on projects that we can produce. So you're sort of formed um a geek think tank yes essentially <laughs> a genre think tank a genre, genre think tank. yeah yes yeah. there you go uh, it seems to be um it seems to be sort of a thread in 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 how you work and how you do things yeah we're i mean we're we're, we're building on two things one is the success of continuum it's it's in 135 countries now which means we have uh, a, a, a brand that we can um, we can you know build on, and the uh-huh. other is just a personal preference from my my point of view and from Steve's point of view. We both like genre material. We both like uh, sci-fi, horror, thriller. Uh, we like the idea that you can create a you know build a universe, build a world within a drama, and so. For us, genre allows for that and allows for um, big themes and um, mm-hmm. uh, more high-concept storytelling. When you were developing Continuum, how much time did you spend doing your world-building? 
Um, with Continuum, it was a it was sort of a stage process. We had uh, on the one hand, well, I, it's it was, when I started, it was just me really on my own developing the the setup um, and the, trying to come up with a, a political and a social anchor for what 2077 represented and what coming to the past uh, was going to mean. And then as the writers came together in the first season, obviously we, we had more brains working on what that feature was about and what the rules were. Also what the, um, what the themes and story, the sub storylines would be. So it kind of evolves and grows as you add more people to the mix. And certainly Mm -hmm. Our producing partners at Reunion Pictures in Vancouver had um, had an influence. Patrick Williams, who's the other executive producer and directing executive producer, brought ideas. Uh, the um, the first year room of writers, we were you know we were all had our our thinking caps on to try and build as many details in that made both of these worlds feel real. You know, mm-hmm. it's. Um we actually drew up a fake future history document. It's about oh, cool. 20 okay. pages long, and it tracked every event that would happen between now and 2077 so that we could reflect back on that when we were talking about um, how 2077 and Continuum came to be. We would have a, essentially a history book that uh-huh. we could look at and say, well, these events all built towards certain things happening in a certain tapestry of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of uh, events. Continuum is a very thinly veiled political commentary. Yeah, some people have said it's not so thin, um, and <laughs> I think I think we always think it's thin, and then of course people call us out immediately and say we're we're overt. Um, but yeah, we've always thought that that's you know science fiction has a, an obligation to um, to reflect on uh, relevant ideas, themes, politics, social uh, concepts. So we we took that obligation seriously and we definitely felt like there was a uh, when you talk about the future and where the world is heading there's an automatic assumption that you have to be political because politics affects the future as much as technology does and so we wanted to merge all of these ideas into the show so that we could comment on the present by discussing how things would turn out in the future well it's uh, the classic if if this goes on trope you know yeah and we were also dealing with a world where there were plenty of politics at work anyway. I mean, we were when the show started, the Occupy movement was in full swing. Anti-corporatism was something that was in the, in the zeitgeist. So um, from a point of view of the story that, you know, I'd come up with, these terrorists who were fighting a corporate Congress in the future, it felt like a, a, something that the audience at least would have a, a sense that, oh, this is something that could have happened, you know, that, that maybe mm-hmm. people did rise up against the corporations. They were ultimately crushed, but that the idea that governments would fail and corporations would bail them out didn't seem like such a far-fetched idea. Well, it's In the United States, it certainly looks like where that's where things are headed. A lot of people think it's already happened. It's just being, it's just been uh, disguised. Yeah. Yeah. We'll Uh, find out in 65 years. Yeah, the worst (laughs) part is if you don't find out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think think you're right there. But, uh, you know, you're certainly not the first to walk, uh, to walk in that garden. No, and Um, we didn't want to hit it on the head. We certainly wanted uh to be front and center with our characters and our big, Mm -hmm. uh, our emotional core character desires but there was always opportunity to make to bring politics into it and we didn't see any reason why not why we shouldn't the rollerball rollerball was all about yeah, the corporations yeah, absolutely yeah rollerball is a good example 
Yeah, I haven't seen that one in years. That was, that was a good reach. That was a good the original reach. one. Yeah, the, the original, original Norman yeah. Jewison one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, I just the the whole remake thing makes me snaky. I'm going. What if they remake Continuum? No. <laughs> well, well, if they, uh, yeah, if they do, I hope you're you're leading pay the you. charge. They'll pay yeah. you. So. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be. Uh, I'm not gonna be not involved. Continuum, the next generation. Um. Exactly. So, despite the dystopian future that Continuum portrays, and the obvious, con- uh, you know, the obvious fight against uh, the inevitable destruction of our timeline. Um, it, you know, it, it seems inevitable anyway. Uh, you're you're going to have to watch the next six episodes then, yeah, aren't I'm you? Yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm hooked. When does that start, <laughs> July? Uh, they haven't, uh, they haven't announced and in the States yet, uh, the uh, air dates for sci-fi. Um, we've been told that, uh, the showcase is thinking late July, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but sci-fi actually hasn't, um, hasn't well, they, made an announcement. They better get on it because, yeah, I, you know, we, we Americans have discovered how to, how to use the dodgy sources of watching our non-American yes. TV shows. So yes. putting it off doesn't really work. No, no, I agree. And I, I've always been encouraging, um, them to try and be as close as possible to our air Canadian air dates to yeah. n- to you know uh, mitigate that. What it, and because it's it's a it's a planetary society now you know yes yeah. it, there's no such thing as a regional release. Well, the BBC yeah, anymore. there shouldn't be there the shouldn't BBC be. had to knuckle under after a while after our friend Marcia Powers told them at Comic Con that you know we all know how to use BitTorrent and we're going to watch it the same day as you see it in London. So yeah. don't don't expect our eyeballs on the screen on on BBC America six months later. And right. funnily enough, the next series <laughs> yeah, of Doctor I Who. Think, I think the fans what a coincidence! Have that voice now and yeah. that, uh, that the broadcasters are listening. I'm sure. I think that one of the reasons we got a season four on Continuum was that the fans were. Um, very vocal in their um, in their concern that the show would get a shot at uh, another season, and that the broadcasters were aware that these were not just Continuum fans; they were fans of several shows that they aired, mm-hmm. and uh, that they didn't want to alienate that group of people who are loyal and are you know are you want you want them to be happy. You rely on repeat business. Yeah, absolutely. Because if I give up on this, then I'll give up on everything on sci-fi or Well, if, you, if you're angry at a broadcaster for one thing, you can, that anger can convert into uh, multiple shows being punished. Mm-hmm. Anyway, as, as I was about to say, despite the dystopian future you portray in Continuum, I sense that there's really a sense of hopefulness in, in this show. Well, it's all yeah. It's all designed around the idea that we can change things that have been um, that have been that we think can't be changed, and certainly the the major themes of the show have been either from the point of view of the of Liberate wanting to change things so they turn out differently to Alex Sadler as an older man trying to uh, protect his younger self from making mistakes. So I think that these are always the the, the big themes that we. Um, think of in life how who wouldn't want to do over in terms of some of the aspects of their life who wouldn't, wouldn't want to go back in time and and make some adjustments or fine tune or completely change what happened in their lives that's something I think everyone can relate to. I think we are at the end of our hour. 
Well, and, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm, we're very glad to have had you on the show, and we hope to have you back. Um, I would be happy to do that. Hopefully it'll be uh, regarding my next series. I'm please. Really, we're really looking forward to it. Well, please stay tuned. For, keep following me on Twitter, and uh, I'm sure that information will be uh, made available as soon as I know it. Great. Thank you very much, Simon. It's Thanks, been, guys. Appreciate it. Sure thing. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. You have just heard episode 107 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for July 18th, 2015. Our guest has been Simon Barry, creator, producer, writer, showrunner, and on rare occasion director of the hit showcase and sci-fi channel science fiction dramatic series Continuum, starring Rachel E. Nichols. Your hosts have been Gene Turnbow and Susan L. Fox. Yes, we will have Miss Nichols on the air at a later date once we get closer to the debut of the long-awaited Season 4 of Continuum, so listen to Krypton Radio for updates and watch our website for announcements. This episode will air again on July 18th, 2018 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. See the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. Krypton Radio is substantially listener-supported sci-fi and geek culture radio. If you would like to become a patron of the Geeky Arts, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio to join the Krypton Radio family of patrons and be a hero of geekdom. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was played by Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry, and the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2015 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>